0: Hey everyone, welcome to the first episode of Footy Creator, a soccer-lit podcast where we interview soccer writers, artists, presenters, and other creatives involved with a beautiful game. I spoke with Jordan Florit for this first episode, who is currently crowdfunding for his new book, Red Wine and Arepas, How Football is Becoming Venezuela's Religion. I wanted to get an insight into how Jordan is going about writing his book, from the research, to the interviews, to an eventual trip to Venezuela. We also touched on Jordan's early soccer fandom, his view on the current state of soccer journalism, and his plans for the future. Jordan was honestly a pleasure to speak to. He's a crazy smart guy who is incredibly articulate and thoughtful with his answers. With all that said, here's Jordan. Jordan, thank you again for for joining us for our first episode and I definitely want to get into your book uh, Red Wine and Arepas how football is becoming Venezuela's religion but before we get into that I kind of wanted to ask you a few questions about your football fandom so I know you're a Saints fan and you went to Burnley away yesterday so I'm wondering have you been attending games since you were a kid?
1: Yeah so I started uh, attending regularly like every home game with a season ticket when I was about 14, 15, but I've been going to games on and off since I was about eight or nine, I think was the first time my dad took me to a game, but it really took until I was 14 or 15 to be able to afford to go. Um, Football in England to attend matches is fairly expensive. Um, It actually took us to get relegated down to League One, the third tier of English football for me to be able to afford to go. So I... Between the ages of uh, 14, 15, the 2009 to 2010 season, uh, right up until the 2015, 16 season, um, I went to every home game um, with the exception of you know four or five games that I may have missed in that five, six year spell.
0: Okay, yeah, that's actually incredible because... Here in the States, so a regular Premier League weekend, it's me pretty much in front of the TV because I'm so far away. I'm across the ocean. So I don't yeah. really get to experience like the the day of fandom of Premier League football and even championship fo- Championship football. So um, I'm actually very jealous that you, you have been able to experience like in person, like top flight football like that. It sounds incredible. Yeah, it was it was a really exciting time. Um
1: for Southampton and Southampton fans uh, in the years that I were, I was going um, every single uh, home game. I now live in London so I can't afford to go every time because on top of the ticket it's then like £40 so about $50 um, for a train ticket to Southampton <laughs> and back but during that time that I, I was going we had back-to-back promotions from the third tier up into the Premier League and then we had Some really exciting managers in uh, Mauricio Pochettino, who's now at Spurs, and um, Ronald Koeman, um, who's now the Netherlands head coach. So we were playing nice football um, under those two managers. And the season that I stopped having a season ticket is the season um, that that Koeman left. So I I didn't have one during the Claude Puel uh, era or or the Pellegrino era, which is when we really started to lose our way in terms of our identity. Uh, So I was sort of... uh, in possession of a season ticket during the best years that we've had in the past 10 years. That's incredible for a fan. Yeah, it was really, it was really, really fortunate.
0: Yeah. Um, so during your your younger days of your football fandom, when did you start writing for the first time?
1: So it actually uh, happened when I was 16 and it took me breaking my collarbone to get into it. Uh, it happened right at the beginning of the summer holidays and I had the whole six, seven week spell between school and college to look forward to uh, playing football myself. Um, So it was was pre-season. I would have spent the entirety of that summer down the park with my friends and then at weekend playing competitive football. And uh, yeah, like I say, right at the beginning of the summer, I broke my collarbone. So I I was going to be able, I wasn't going to be able to play all summer, uh, but I wanted to stay involved in football. I couldn't imagine a, a summer holiday without being totally engrossed in football. So I started my own blog, which I ran for uh, two two and a half years uh, throughout my college years. and then for the first um, semester of university I used to post uh, four to five times a week every week that's and impressive I yeah it was like a commitment I had time back then to do it like I'd spend my I'd spend my lunch times like starting an article and then I'd finish it when I got home from school so I kept that up until I went to university and then like real life uh, if you like got in the way um, with with you know full time studies and then having a full time job um as well it became you know, too much really so i i cut down on the blog and just wrote for a few websites here and there okay and, and then and... yeah sorry go ahead
0: no i was i was going to ask um did you study journalism at university so what i
1: through GCSE so 11, uh, 11 to 16 in secondary school you pick your GCSEs when you're 14 so um, from GCSE 14 to 16 uh, I did English language and English literature which you have to in England and on top of that I uh, chose sports science uh, which is split between the psychology the sociology and the um, biology if you like of of sports performance and then I took those three subjects again at A-level, so education from 16 to 18. And uh, what I intended to do at university was sports science and with the optional modules, um, I was going to specialise in journalism. Ultimately, I wanted to be a a full-time sports journalist, uh, but it's obviously it's a very competitive market um, in the UK. And one of the problems I think we have is it's so saturated with writers that are willing to work for free that um you know a lot of the industry uh, it, that is salaried is is hard to get into because lots of sites just are happy to pump out uh content which is you know good enough um but but not great because they can keep their costs down by just putting out good content that they're not paying for um you know as a business model uh, is it, more profitable than paying you know a, a writer that might be better a a salary so i not that that's not the reason why but I actually dropped out of university and didn't complete my uh, course I became a unqualified primary school teacher so I I taught PE physical education um, to seven to eleven year olds I did that for 18 months um, and I coached football at the weekends I did that again for about 18 months and then it was the realization that because I was an unqualified teacher because I didn't have my qualified teacher status. I was only ever going to earn so much money and I was already at the top of the pay scale. Um, so I was like 20, 21 years old knowing that my, my salary was already capped at about $23,000. Um, and you know, that's not really enough. Uh, no knowing that I was never going to earn more staying in teaching. I, I had a change of career, uh, became a copywriter. So I, the whole time that I was, uh, in full-time work as a teacher, I I did bits of writing here and there to like keep in the, um, keep in the industry if you like, because ultimately I want to be a full-time writer. So when I saw the copywriting job, uh, I took that and I sort of describe it as, uh, you know, going to the gym to keep fit rather than actually playing football. Uh, Cause at the moment, my job in copywriting, it's not related to football at all. I just do internal communications for a government department um, and then do their social media as well. So it's not what I want to write about, but at least I'm writing. Uh, but my, my uh, full-term aim is to you know, be a full-time writer uh, as an occupation.
0: Okay, okay. But um, I feel like you're doing the right thing in the fact that you're a copywriter because, like you said, it, it's keeping the gears grinding. You're, you're working at your craft, and that's only going to help you with your future endeavors in football writing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and and that's how I sort of like justify it to myself that, you know, I, I'm not a full-time
0: writer yet, but at least I am practicing my craft. Yeah, you'll you're spot on. Exactly. You're, you're on the right path. And I liked what you said about the current uh, football journalism industry. It's kind of in flux right now because of all these websites wanting to put out mediocre content. Um, but what are your thoughts on all the independent websites and blogs that are popping up all over the place, um, especially on Twitter, with young writers kind of just writing on different platforms, trying to get their name out there. Do you think it's a help to, to young writers or do you think they're being exploited because at the end of the day, they're still writing for free?
1: Yeah. So I think it's a, it's a really fine balance. Um, it's great that people are putting um, themselves out there, but there's, there's a risk that that um, content is, is just exploited as, as free content um, exactly, as, as you said, exploitation is the word. Um, but I, th- I think one positive of what's happening at the moment with with young rights creating their own platforms and managing their own platforms is it's it's sort of it's bypassing the gatekeepers to the industry. Um, you know, you're 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 not having to get through that hurdle of being offered a, a job by those in the industry, those that hold the key. Um, so it, it's it's got the pros and cons. The con the cons is. You know, those writers are writing for free and and all the while that they are, um, pe- people are getting content for free. And uh, I, I do believe that good writing should be available as a as a uh, as a reader, as a consumer um, for free. But at the end of the day, someone does have to pay for that. And uh, it's it's how how that's funded is, is the thing that, you know, is the challenge really for the industry, because uh, you get you get lots of writing now, which is clickbait because they're just getting ad revenue. Um, and you know that's one way that they can pay their writers, but it it, it then comes at the cost of the quality of the journalism and, and what you're actually reading about. So I, I think there's some conundrums there for the industry, but I think ultimately it's the the professional side of the industry's uh, responsibility to to pay writers properly. So I'm not quite comfortable with the Atlantic. Um, I, I presume presumably you've you've seen them um, start up in the past week and um you're talking about
0: the the athletic uk uh
1: yes yes okay yeah sorry the the athletic not the atlantic um although the atlantic's a good outlet but yeah Yeah, the athletic (laughs) um yeah the athletics uh model you know it's, it's not it's something that doesn't sit quite right for me um but i i can sort of understand why they're doing it um but i've seen comments from people that were involved uh, with the athletic on a, on a management level. I I don't know their names. I don't know their roles, Um, but I've, I've described them the other day in a conversation with somebody else that they're sort of like the Uber of journalism. Um, They're going to, I think a long-term strategy is, is basically they're going to force a lot of competitors out of the industry. um, And I don't think that's good. Um, I I do believe in in competition in in all markets. um, And I think the the athletics long-term Could hinder that. Um, I I think there could be a a threat to like the integrity of journalism itself.
0: Okay, that's a very interesting analogy, the Uber of of football journalism. I, I totally agree with that. I think there should be competition. I think it's very important. And I think that at the moment, because of all of this clickbait and um, the want of professional journalists to, to do great work they this is really their only option at the moment or one of their very few options so it'll be very interesting to see where the athletic goes and how that kind of um, I guess leads to, to other outlets Um Sorry, I'm like losing my thoughts right now. But like, what the Guardian will do, or what the Independent will do, like what what does this mean for them? Because they, at the moment, they don't have a paywall, and at the moment, the Guardian, Guardian especially, their their content is top notch. But if yeah. the Athletic keeps poaching their best talent, where do they go from here?
1: Yeah, exactly. A huge and
0: question. yeah, uh, yeah, I, I completely agree
1: with you. And there's sort of like a there's you know there's morality and ethics to that in terms of you can understand that these writers, um, you know, want to be paid and understand the pull of writing for the athletic in that sense. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's got to sit right with you. And I'd hope that like, if the athletics start to, uh, be a hindrance to the competition, um, of, of journalism, uh, perhaps, uh, we can hope that they, they struggle to continue attracting talent because it, 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 then becomes like a moral and ethical decision to, to write for the athletic. Um, but you know, this is all speculation. Like it, it, it remains to be seen how they how they do go in the future. But I have seen I have seen comments on in articles that I've read this week responding to the Athletic coming out, and um, you know, it doesn't look great in terms of their long term ambition. I think it will harm the industry.
0: Yeah, it will definitely be interesting to see what happens with that. But um, I want to harken back to something you said before about bypassing the gatekeeper and i think that's kind of what you're doing with your book red wine and arepas how football is becoming venezuela's religion so instead of working with a publishing company you have decided to crowdfund your book and at the moment you have uh uh, gotten over 75 percent of your of your goal amount so what kind of went into the decision of crowdfunding for for the book so it, it it was it was the it was the gatekeeper situation. So
1: I pitched the idea to some publishers and was offered a, a publishing deal. Uh but I I thought it was incredibly um exploitative. The offer was for a thousand books, uh, which sounds great, doesn't it? Like somebody had offered me a book deal for a thousand books and that, that was the great aspect of it and, and what I've taken from the offer is the confidence to go ahead and do the Kickstarter and like the belief that I do have a good book and a, a good plan um, on my hands but what I didn't like about the deal um, which is why I've done the Kickstarter is how it uh, what it boiled down to um, fr- financially I'm not writing this book to make money I've been very clear on the Kickstarter um, and publicly that it's a not-for-profit um, campaign that every penny that I raise through the Kickstarter will go into the production and printing of the book um, I'm, I'm gonna be clear and transparent with that and it is something I can guarantee but the the offer from publishing, the publishing company was—I I think it was exploitation. What it boiled down to was per cu- per copy sold, they mm-hmm. were going to be making five pound ninety, so about six dollars fifty um, per copy sold, and I would be making sixty-five p, so about eighty cents. Uh, so they were—they were—they—they were, they were, they, they were making—they were taking ninety percent of the profit from the book, and I, it was sort of like, well, who's who's writing the book here? Like, I understand that publishing companies offer a service. Uh, but I thought, you know, I'd rather take control of my own writing, do all of the, um, do everything myself, like the the uh, publishing, the marketing, the, you know, the promotion campaign for the Kickstarter, uh, advertising where I can. I'd rather do all that myself and put the £5.90 that would be pure profit for a publisher into making a good book. So that that's what really drove me to, to use crowdfunding as a way of getting this book off the ground, selling pre-orders. Uh, you know, I'm not just, it's not like a GoFundMe page. I'm not asking money for nothing. Uh, the reward tier system on the Kickstarter is based around pre-ordering a copy of the book, essentially. It's just that you're, you're pre-ordering a book before it's complete. So that's been the, one of the main challenges of running the Kickstarter. At the end of the day, I, I am trying to persuade people to buy a book that is yet to be fully written. Um, But I think people have have been quite responsive to it. Like you say, it's over 75% funded. It's 78% funded now. I'm £1,100 away from hitting the target, which is about 50 to 60 copies more that I need to sell. Uh, I've got 107 backers so far, uh, about 100 of which are are copies of the book already sold. So um, people have got behind the project and that's been really encouraging for me. And the more... The Kickstarter campaign's gone on, the more enthused and inspired to carry on with the project um, I've become.
0: Yeah, it's been an an incredible success so far. So uh, at the end of the day, you made the right decision in bypassing the the publishing company. Hopefully,
1: yeah. It's a long way to go Yeah, I still need to hit the funding goal. For anyone that isn't aware, Kickstarter funding is all or nothing. So if I don't hit my target of 5,000, I don't get any of the money raised and everyone keeps their money. So nobody loses out but I won't get anything. So Kickstarter is all or nothing funding. So you like you can see the target at the moment, and I've raised just shy of three thousand nine hundred pounds. But mm-hmm. you know I, I don't get any of that until I hit the target of five thousand. Uh, so you know I, I need to make sure I, I hit my funding goal. Uh, otherwise, it will be you know virtually impossible for me to kick on and write this book. Gotcha, gotcha.
0: So how did an Englishman become so infatuated with Latin American culture and more specifically Venezuela?
1: So, for Latin America, to, to quickly get how I I became interested in that, my dad and his side of the family are Spanish-speaking, so I've always had an interest in the Spanish-speaking world. They're from Mallorca in Spain. And it was as I, sort of when I finished college, really, at 18, I started to read about the continent. I, I'm a massive reader. I read just as much, if not more, than I write. And I started reading about the country, uh, because my my now wife, who's my girlfriend at the time, she grew up with the culture. Her best friend, as a child, throughout schools, Venezuelan from Caracas, and when I moved in with my girlfriend, like the music she plays, like reggaeton and pachata, and her cooking is like influenced from the the, the continent. Obviously, country to country, the the food obviously differs, but there are common themes running throughout the the continent uh, in the music and the food and the culture, and um, I just you know, became inquisitive because I was surrounded by it. So I just started reading books from each country. Um, I'm really into uh, culture, history and politics. So I was just reading books from each country about that. And um, when I got to Venezuela, all the books in English were on uh, the revolution, uh, Hugo Chavez and um, Simon Bolivar. And I read all those books and I really enjoyed them. But then I'd normally turn to a football book because I think football, Books can be a great like window into society, into society, but there are no books on Venezuelan football. So to sort of uh, get in touch with of with the game in the country, I had to go looking. Really, like I had to use Twitter and try and find Venezuelans that were writing about football. Um, I can I can speak a bit of Spanish. I can read a lot more Spanish, and I can talk myself. Um, but <clears throat> it is a it is very intensive to to read in a language that I'm not fluent in. And there aren't many people writing about Venezuela in English. There's two good Twitter accounts, um, one called uh, Hispanospherical, uh, run by a guy called Darren, and another uh, Twitter account that tweets about Venezuelan football in English is called The Red Wine. So they are two good English language accounts on Venezuelan football. But other than that, you are relying on individuals like uh, Dominic Bosonio, who I think you've plugged quite a few of his articles before. Um, so I had to basically immerse myself as much as i could in the very few um sources that were out there um in english and that sort of led to a more interactive more immersed um experience of venezuelan football it's not like i could just pick up a book on venezuelan football and read it and that's that like i could with argentina and brazil and um to a lesser extent uruguay so that's, that's really how I developed the interest in, in Venezuelan football. It very much came after an underlying interest in Latin America and then Venezuela itself.
0: Okay, okay. And I remember reading one of your, your previous interviews and you said one of the reasons you wanted to write about Venezuela was because the country has so much potential, both on a national level and on a football level. Can you talk a little bit more about what potential Venezuela has? In, in football? In football and, and for, for its politics and, and the country as a whole.
1: Yeah, of course. So when it, when it comes down to the football, I really admire um, the change in approach that they've um, established in the past 15 years or so. They were regularly the whipping boys of um, South American football. Uh, they went 40 years from 1967 to 2007 um, without winning a single game at the Copper America. Uh, that was from their tournament debut right up until they hosted it themselves, 40 years apart without a win, which is, you know, incredibly long time. And they've never qualified for a World Cup either. So that was that was 40 years of, you know, a miserable, miserable existence for a national football side and, and anyone in the country interested in the sport. In 2007, that started to change. They hosted Venezuela. Uh, Venezuela hosted the Copa America. That obviously always has um, huge... Uh, political and social ramifications for a country like we've seen with Brazil, who have recently hosted not just the World Cup, but also the Olympics, uh, what the repercussions of of that is on society. Uh, Before the uh, tournament itself was hosted, they essentially forced uh, gentrification of a lot of areas. They just swept entire favelas to the side, either because they were visibly unattractive in their opinion um, for a country that's trying to host an international tournament, but also to make way for new stadiums. Um, you know. So these are the kind of um, repercussions of hosting an international tournament. But on the positive side, um, it brings added attention to the sport. A uh, country tends to get behind um, its, its team or teams uh, with the Olympics um, when a country hosts it in a way that they wouldn't if it was hosted in another country. Um, so, for example, like my grandparents, she has no interest in football um, or, or sport in general. But when London hosted the Olympics, like, you know, she loved it. Uh, that wouldn't have happened, uh, you know, Tokyo or Brazil. Like she had no interest, wouldn't have known what was going on at all. So in 2007, when Venezuela hosted the Copa America, um, the country and the politicians, Hugo Chavez at the time, who's always had been a baseball fan, uh, really got behind the the tournament. And the league that year introduced a rule called the juvenile rule, Um Translated anyway, which states that every team in every league and cup game must start with at least one under 20 in their lineup. And if that under 20 player is substituted, it must be for another under 20. So that's been in place for about 12 years now and it's really improved the quality of the league and in turn, it's improved the quality of Venezuelan football, uh, football players. So they're now exporting more players to, you know, the big leagues in South America, the MLS, top leagues in Europe than they ever have before. So there's been like a direct um, improvement, direct correlation between the steps that they took in 2007, both nationally, internationally and domestically, um, that you can really trace a mark through the past 12 years. I think that will only continue. The country... Uh, has a population of just over thirty million, um, so it's, it's sizable in in terms of population, half the size of England, um, but <clears throat> it's the fifth biggest country in the continent. And Brazil aside, which is sort of like an anomaly given it given its size, uh, you know, it it has big potential when it comes to football, and they they sort of only in the recent years uh, tried to grab hold of that and. In the past uh, two to three years since Rafa Dudamel, the current head coach, has been in charge of Venezuela, they've gone from 70-something in the rankings to now 26th, uh, which is their highest ever uh, position, the FIFA World Rankings. And it's been a very purposeful progression. They're very vocal, the FVF, the Venezuelan Football Federation, very vocal with the fact that their aim is qualification for Qatar 2022, which would be their first World Cup. And it really has been... I'd say at least seven years in, in the making.
0: Okay. And then, so there's all this potential for Venezuelan football, as you just noted, but are you, with this book, are you trying to break any stereotypes about Venezuela, the nation? Because when you hear Venezuela on the news, yeah. you hear political turmoil. Turmoil.
1: Yeah. So yeah. with this
0: book, is, is a focus just on football or do you want to kind of give a different insight into its culture and its society and its politics as well. Yeah,
1: I do. I don't want to um, break stereotypes necessarily, uh, but I do want to, like you say, give another insight into the country. Um, I think football, uh, like in terms of anthropology, I think football is, is right up there as, as one of the best tools, one of the best methods to um, explain culture and communities and society in the whole and all the different aspects um, that it it contains predominantly. This is a football book. Like that, like don't don't misunderstand that it is a football book. Uh, but it will entail so much more than just what goes on on the pitch and you know who scored a goal when, who holds the record for this, that, and the other. It's not a potted history of football in Venezuela. Um, it really is a contemporary look at the state of the country now and in say the past twenty years or so, and how football reflects society and society back on football that's really what I want to do with this. Um, I don't particularly want to break stereotypes, but the conversation on Venezuela at the moment, I feel is very one dimensional um, and very um, polemic, Are You, uh, especially in the UK and the US. And I, I talk from those countries because they're the ones I know most about and also because they're English speaking, uh, so they're more accessible to me as an individual. Uh, it's it's a very negative uh, the way Venezuela is covered I'm not saying that that's incorrect Um, you know there are lots of problems with the country but you do only get one narrative and when people think of Venezuela all they do think of is um, politics and and corruption and, and maybe oil is they've got a bit more of an understanding past just the the very face of it I don't Want to change the conversation on Venezuela, where, you know, it shouldn't be ignored. I want to add to that conversation. And my biggest hope for this book is I can teach people about Venezuela through football. I can teach people about Venezuela in a way that isn't um, what you hear on the news.
0: Okay. And a way you're going to do that is by interviewing i think dozens of venezuela people who have worked in football who have played football who are actually on the ground in the country so before we get into specifics about these interviews that you'll be conducting can you take me into the process of how you booked all these interviews in the first place
1: yeah so it
0: really uh not got out of hand like i'm on top of
1: it but it did very much like snowball very quickly uh when i first intended um to write this book when i first had the idea for it I thought that I'd very much be writing it from the uh, outside in. Um, it was never my intention uh, to write the book without ever going to Venezuela. I, I wouldn't do that. Um, and if there was uh, any suggestion that that I that I write this book without going to Venezuela, I've I've batted it away. Some people have said, you know, don't go. Uh, that's been people inside and outside of Venezuela. But I I wouldn't write the book uh, without going. I don't think it would be, um, you know, I don't think it would be authentic. I don't think it's the right thing to do. So the way the book has evolved to the state that it's in now, um, it went from just uh, a few interviews uh, with a Venezuelan football journalist and player. Um, that's Carlos Terace, the CEO of um, Solo Venex, which is a, a Venezuelan um, football uh, sort of company if you like they are they do different services in the community they've also got a big online social media presence um that uh, primarily focuses on venezuelans playing outside of the country um so venezuelans inside the country can like keep tabs and keep up to date on on what their their football players are doing um abroad uh, it started with an interview of him and then in turn christian Casares jr who plays for new york red bulls and i wrote an article for these football times um based around those interviews that was quite well received um, off of the back of that article, um, I gained some new follows on Twitter, both like MLS fans and also uh, Venezuelan football fans. Um, and that led to conversations and, and talking about Venezuela and Venezuelan football with a few different people. And um, I then sort of felt encouraged to write more about Venezuelan football. I'd always tried to s- stay clear of writing about it, even though I had a massive interest in the country, because it can, it by its nature... Um, writing about Venezuela can divide. It's, it's very easy to alienate one side of the argument, um, if you like, because it is so polemic. And writing that article sort of gave me the encouragement I needed to, to write about it a bit more because it is something I'm interested in. And I had, you know, a few contacts and a few um, interviews lined up, but then sort of each one of them had more suggestions on what they believe should be known about the country and its sport and they gave me contacts with other people and then those contacts would give me contacts and those contacts would give me contacts and suddenly it went from having maybe a few articles on my hands to thinking actually I could do something more substantial with this um maybe I can write a book and I've always wanted to write a book but I've always thought I'll either one day have the motivation inspiration something will grab hold of me and I'll want to um otherwise i just you know let it go let it slip uh, like you know it'd be nice to write a book but if something doesn't uh, grab hold of me and, and really motivate me then I'd, I'd just leave it as like an unfulfilled unfulfilled ambition i wasn't just going to one day sit down and go i'm going to write a book let's go uh so th- that's sort of how it happened really quite organically just just went from a few articles to having quite an expansive like network of people that wanted to speak wanted to um teach people about the sport and the country itself and that's sort of that's how it's happened
0: that's incredible i I love to hear that because it seems like just your your initial interest in the subject excited all these figures in venezuela football and they're kind of empowering you to tell their story for them so that's really beautiful to hear yeah there's so many stories
1: um in the country uh both football and otherwise that are there to to know but they're just not down in english and um and in some cases not down at all and that's something that i want to change really
0: yeah that's wonderful so you mentioned before that people when you told them you want to go to venezuela to to conduct some of these interviews some people told you not to go so what's your thought process so uh is there any fear is there like a lot of precaution obviously being taken do you have to work with the state department like what what are the logistics of making it down there to conduct these interviews so what
1: the the people that have expressed concern or advised me not to go some have been outside of the country and are sort of saying it with their only experience of the country being what they hear on the news so that's sort of just born out of um, like a, a sort of instilled fear of what they know that goes on the co- what they know of what goes on in the country is all negative but also I've been told not to go by people that are very informed that live in the country that live in Caracas are Venezuelans as well as Venezuelans that have left the country um, ones that I've met in person in England and, and others that I speak to you know through Skype and what's that based in in Florida based in Miami based in Wisconsin based in Madrid um, Uruguay all over um, you know there's a huge Venezuelan uh, diaspora that are involved um, in the sport and uh, I've been lucky enough uh, to talk to a lot of them and you know some of them are, are telling me not to go that it's not worth the risk like I'm, I'm 25 years old uh, I only uh, got married two years ago I have a six-month-old daughter um, and some people just saying like why would you risk that don't go um, and other Venezuelans have said you know it is bad but you live in London. Um, it's it's no, not particularly worse than there. Uh, act the same way that you would if you were on a night out in London. Don't put yourself in dangerous situations. Take precautions. You know, have your wits about you, that kind of thing. They weren't playing down the situation in Venezuela. It's You can't ignore what's happening. Um, but they were more of the belief that, you know, you can come, you will be okay, providing you take precautions and, and you're not stupid. And I... Like I said to you earlier, I wouldn't write this book unless I could go to Venezuela. So that was the first big decision I had to make, really. The biggest challenge, if you like, um, to overcome was deciding to, to go to Venezuela.
0: Okay. And in terms of big names you'll be interviewing, um, I remember reading that you are planning on um, interviewing Solomon Rondon. So how did that come about? So
1: the, the Rondon in particular, uh, how yeah. did that one come about or just yeah. in general... Uh so with with Rondon it was a obviously there's the the marketing pool if you like, he's the biggest face, um, the current face of Venezuelan football. Um, like nobody that that has a uh, even just the smallest interest in Venezuelan football doesn't know who he is. He's huge. Um so people of course were like, Well, if you're gonna write about Venezuelan football, you'd be stupid not to to try and interview him and that's uh obviously that didn't escape me like that hadn't passed me by but it was like well how do you do that like he um by all accounts as well was quite a private person doesn't talk much especially about Venezuela um doesn't really open up to too many journalists uh but there were a few Venezuelans involved in in the game that I'd spoken to uh agents um that I met an agent very fortunately I went to uh events in London during the Copa America that were screening Venezuelan games. Uh, So a lot of the Venezuelan community in London went to that. And I was introduced uh, to a guy who runs a a football agency, amongst other things. And he uh, had the number of Rondon's personal agent, um, as did the executive uh, president of the Venezuelan Football League, Ruben Vicencio, who's really helping me put this whole project together. He also had contact details for people closer on Don. Um, and that's that's how it came about, really. I was past the agent's number. I've contacted the agent, but obviously he was in the process of negotiating his move from um, West Brom to uh, Dalian in, in China, which is now where he is. So the opportunity to interview him whilst he was still in England uh, was, well, basically it was a non starter uh, because it was almost a guarantee that he was going to be moving clubs there was a chance that he would go to um, West Ham, it was highly unlikely that he was going to go to Newcastle as soon as Benitez wasn't staying and the so the chance very quickly evaporated of interviewing him face to face as soon as it was China that he chose as his destination um, so if I, if I do get to interview him, it's something obviously that I'm going to continue to pursue um, you know, it's 99% uh, likely that it will happen through Skype or WhatsApp. Uh, it's not going to be something that I'll be doing face to face. I wouldn't, wouldn't, um, you know, try and sell the book off the back of meeting Rondon. Um, so, yeah, the, the the likelihood of actually meeting him uh, personally is is minuscule, really, unless Venezuela happens to play a friendly in in Europe in the next twelve months, um, or for some reason he happens to be in Venezuela when I am. Um, it, it's safe to say that 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 will happen through uh, video call or something
0: okay that makes total sense
1: yeah but but, uh, like all these interviews have have come about through people's willingness and, and and want to engage in this um and a lot of it has been like players themselves like players have um been happy to talk and um like you know delighted that someone wants to write about the game and the the country itself and players have you know recommended other players to me um to talk to and have like introduced me or just passed me their contacts. So it it has really been massively helped by just people wanting to, to be a part of this. Uh, One of the, one of the things that's been like most advantageous to me, um, which is through no, nothing more than where I was born is, is people are um, enthused. Venezuelans are enthused that there's someone from England that is taking an interest in their game and, and wants to write about it. So that's been, Something that's helped me, but you know, to no credit of my own, it was just where I was born.
0: No, but that makes total sense because obviously, if they're down in the ground in Venezuela and they know the discourse that's going on around the world about what's happening in their country politically, the fact that you want to tell a story that goes beyond that political strife, it, it's it means a lot to them. It makes total sense. So yeah, you're doing great work with this. You're creating community in Venezuela and out of Venezuela, which is honestly a beautiful thing to see but um in terms of writing a book obviously that's a huge undertaking so what i want to get insight into is what is your writing process like do you have a number of pages you want to um write a day is there like a weekly goal is there a monthly goal like what is your specific process for writing this book
1: so i i aim for it to be uh like 350 pages which is about 100,000 words uh, most most books are 3 to 350 words per page um and the the kind of books that i want to um that i've taken inspiration from uh, are books like jonathan wilson's uh he writes uh beautifully about football in different countries his um, if it's not his, his latest book, one of his latest books uh, is called Angels with Dirty Faces, which is a history of football in Argentina. Um, he's written about football um, in the Soviet Union, um, as well as other countries. And then James Montagu, who wrote When Friday Comes, which is a book about football in North Africa and the Middle East. It was essentially a travel diary based around football. And he also wrote a book called 31 Nil, which was about tiny countries around the world that are trying to qualify for the world cup those books are around those length um so i i did rudimentary uh you know research into the average length of, of the kind of book that i want to write I, I own like 67 football books myself so i just i just went through and and thought you know what what's the standard length what should i aim for and then the second question is like well is that something that i can replicate is it is it a realistic target and uh you know so just maths really went into it and i basically came to the decision that if i can first draft a chapter a week which would be about 3000 words um if i wrote 38 chapters um and if you know i halved that 19 chapters which, which in terms of chapters in a book isn't very many but like <clears throat> it it the that's how the maths works a, a 3000 word um chapter a week in terms of first draft would mean the book would take me 38 weeks uh and then i'd allow uh a five five weeks to 10 weeks maximum to uh edit it and 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 have it finalized and i thought well that's manageable like i at the moment i write at least two articles a week um and my articles normally end up being between 2000 and 2500 words so i know that at the moment um, with with little motivation to write um, external motivation that is I already write four to five thousand words um, a week anyway with with the articles that I write. so it, it's it's a, a rate of writing which I'm used to doing uh, so i I'm confident that I can that I can stick to that. So I've told everyone who backs this book through Kickstarter that the expected um, release when they can expect to Um, know that the book's complete and and being posted to them is uh, next summer, and I'm I'm confident I can stick to that. Um, So yeah, that was was the thought process in terms of, you know, the length of the book and and what I intend to try and stick to, to, to make that viable
0: okay okay yeah because i was wondering about that because you mentioned before you're married you have a six-month-old daughter yeah. you have this full-time <clears throat> job so i was like how's jordan getting all this done but that make- makes total sense yeah um, i don't it- have a life outside <laughs> Outside, <of that. laughs> it's sort of uh
1: it's like situation has benefited me like i'm not from london and my job is shift work so i, I work 24 7 uh hours like i work night shifts uh I work early i work late and because because of uh, shift disturbance my shift pattern every five weeks i get a week off mm-hmm. um so there, there's benefits to working shifts but the the other the other downside that sort of become a benefit in terms of um writing and stuff is that i in in living in a city that i'm not from and working shifts which makes it hard to socialize because i work three out of five weekends as well um i don't really have a friend group in london uh, all my all my friends that i've had since childhood Um, dotted around the country because of university or you know they're in Southampton so I I have few distractions um, that that sort of take away from from family life and writing a lot of my free time um, is is spent is spent writing
0: okay but would you say you're somewhat living the dream like you you have this family you're you're working on a passion project you're you have a lot of support with for your writing Are, are you happy where you're at right now uh, no, but I'm never happy with where I'm at because okay. I always I always know what I want
1: to do next. Um, I have uh, we we've had my wife and I have had a, a long term ambition to emigrate to Latin America, and that's uh, we've sort of we've not curtailed that, but we've adapted it. Uh, my wife's grandparents are in their mid 80s; um, they're not in the best health. Uh, if we went to Latin America, you know, getting back from there to England uh, takes you know the best part of a day um and on short notice it could also be incredibly expensive uh so it's likely that we will emigrate to spain first um and live there for um a few years maybe five uh years and then move on to latin america so so, sort of do it in steps um not uh, just one massive step to latin america more of a gradual uh progression and also like I said to you at the beginning of this conversation, like I ultimately want to be a full-time writer. Uh, the, you know, the job I'm in, I'm not happy in because it's not what I want to do. Uh, it gets me through uh, for now and I'm comfortable. And, you know, I have, you know, a lot of people would say, well, I, I have no idea why you'd want to change your career. Because like, I can guarantee to you now that if I um, moved into writing tomorrow full-time, like it would be real-time uh, loss in my salary like I I earn more now doing my job uh, that I do than I would from writing uh, so people were like well why would you want to do that like you know you're, you're married you have a kid like you have a house uh, not house sorry have a flat with a mortgage like why why would you want to change that but I I, it's not what inspires me I can't I can't just live for the next 40 years until I retire just doing a job because it pays okay um, when I'm not passionate about it like I, I've had uh, at least a, a nine-year plan now to get into writing. I was offered a job in Ecuador being a, a writer and mm. an editor in 2017. And I had to turn it down, which like still hurts to this day. I just hope I don't regret it long-term. But that was because my wife and I had a date set for our wedding and she was in teacher training. She's a primary school teacher. And so the timing just wasn't right um, for taking that job. So I, it's just hoping that that comes up again so whilst you know i i am having uh, uh i have a project uh passion project how you worded it at, on the go at the moment uh i wouldn't say i'm living the dream because i like i'm i'm not where i'm at uh i'm not i'm not where i'm at is not where i want to to be at in in life so i i'm restless as a person i always want more i'm always aiming for more so um I'm going to enjoy the next 12 months. I'm going to enjoy writing this book. And I I really hope that the Kickstarter is successful because it's what I want to do. Um, So I'm, I'm really appreciative of the support that I've already got. And um, I just hopefully have enough to get me over that line.
0: I love to hear that, man. I love to hear the passion in your voice and, and kind of, the the path that you already have set set in front of you that you and everything you want to achieve like you know where it is you see it and like you're you're on the on the course to get there so I love to hear that and you did mention before you make it to Latin America um you want to make it to Spain first so yeah not to get too ahead of things but are there any other book ideas or like long form article ideas in your head that you're thinking about or is everything at the moment just Venezuela
1: Everything at the moment is just Venezuela. I write for, um, well, I write for three websites regularly. I write for these Football Times. Uh, I write for the Terrace. Um, they've recently um, added uh, to their uh, business, if you like. They're predominantly uh, in like football clothing and, and merchandise, and they have a lot of uh, partnership, official partnerships with football clubs in in England. But they they recently wanted to you know, expand in, in what they offer to the football community. And one of the ways in which they wanted to is by having their own platform, having their own blog. And the director of uh, the Terrace, a guy called Carl, uh, approached me having, having seen the work I do and said, we'd love for you to run our, our platform. Um, you know, if, if you want to, that's yours. You can be our editor. You'll have like complete freedom over what you write about. And uh, it's yours to turn down. So I, I took them up. So I write for The Terrace as well of these football times. And then I also write for Pundit Feed. Mm. Uh, but I am I will, in writing this book, have to cut down how much that I do for other people. The Terrace will be the priority because it's the big responsibility. Like I, I do that on my own. We don't have other writers um, at the moment. And Carl's put a lot of uh, trust in me and a lot of faith in me uh, to do that. So uh, The Terrace is, is the one uh, platform that I will continue to write for uh, with a guarantee. But um, I, I, I'm i always open to to people um, approaching me for paid work. But Venezuela is, and the book project is, like, my my primary intention and, and will be for the next 12 months. In terms of beyond that, like I know what I like to write about. Um, I don't like to write gossip. I don't like to write match reports or, or rumours. or It's the things that skirt football that I'm really interested in. Um, and I think hopefully that's clear to see in, in the topics that I choose to write about. And that's, that's where I want to be in the long run. This book will, uh, the next 12 months and writing this book will um, show me whether being an author is, is what I want to do in the long run or, or whether I'm happy to just write articles and, and long form pieces. And that, that's, that's gonna be something that, you know, at the end of this 12 months will be clear to me. Um, I have a few ideas uh, for books if I, if I write in the future. Uh, I've got a big interest in Cuba as well. Um, but and again that's a country that in terms of football is like non-existent um, in in England and the state of football in the country is is pretty rubbish to be honest and (laughs) there's also a lot of political um, aspects to to their to their football as well so if I I was to write another book that would probably be one avenue that I explore first I wrote a four-part series on Cuban football which was um, originally on uh, football in the city and then it was um, republished by the miscellaneous football magazine that came out last month. Uh, So yeah, there's plenty that there's plenty that I I'd like to write about in the future. And I know what I like to write about and I'm pretty selective um, with, with what I like to write about. So there is like a a long-term plan if you like about what I would want to take on in the future.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's wonderful to hear because at the moment you're putting out great work and I'm sure, a lot of your followers on Twitter and the followers of the websites you write for, they, they want to continue reading that work. So, um, before we go, before I ask you to plug, um, your book one last time and let everybody know where they can support. Um, I want to end the interview by asking you to suggest one football website, YouTube channel, or podcast you would recommend listen, listeners to check out.
1: Uh, that's a, <laughs> that's, a that's a tough <laughs> one. um, uh just one. I'd uh <laughs> let's go for three.
0: Let's let's go for okay. three then. We'll say three. three.
1: Yeah, okay. Three's three's good. Uh so I would start with uh I would start with these football times. Like I like what they do. Um I like the I like the concept um of, of what they offer and I I'm, I know a lot of the writers online, like I, I don't know them personally, uh but th- their writers are, are passionate about what they do. They don't write clickbait journalism they don't write match reports and gossip and um, I think what they do uh, push out and their their writers that they do have I I think is is quality journalism and I I respect their writers they're good Uh, a second one in no particular order uh, would be uh, voicing football they again they don't do I don't think they do anyway I don't think they they create their own um, articles but they uh highlight good work that are being do uh, that is being done by freelance writers and and uh other journalists and i think they're really good at picking out um good pieces um so you get a variety of uh platforms by following them and then thirdly yourselves um i, I love what you do and oh, thank uh, you. very similar to these uh very similar to voicing football i i love the concept and um, I love what you do, like, you, you create great articles, really. Um, so, that takes so much pressure off of uh, a reader or a consumer of um, football literature. You don't have to choose where to go, you don't particularly need to know, you know, who's reputable, is this, uh, are these good writers? Like, you do that job for the reader. Um, so, yeah, these football times, voicing football in yourself, are my go tos when it comes to uh, reading. I don't tend to read um, mainstream uh outlets for sport with the exception of the guardian i subscribe to their daily football blog the fiverr and uh yeah that's that's where i'd end that with
0: cool cool all good recommendations and i really appreciate that that shout out that's nice to hear
1: no worries it's, it's well deserved
0: cool and um so just uh before we go can you just uh plug your book and where we can support you
1: yeah so um kickstarter is the platform for people to support the project and um get their pre-order from if they want to pre-order a copy of the book and you can follow me on twitter at the false libero that's where you'll find out um, more about the project Uh, but obviously if you back the kickstarter project, you'll be getting regular updates um, over the next 12 months there's a few different uh, rewards that you can get that's kickstarter's terminology uh, because ultimately you are backing somebody's creative dream um, and you know as a creator you want to reward the people that that make that dream a reality so through my kickstarter page you can pre-order a copy of the book which is um 20 pounds i don't know what that is in dollars but it includes free shipping worldwide so you know the price on the tin is is what you're paying for it is there's no like shipping at checkout and then the next level up from that is 25 pounds that's the uh, copy of the book and then a writer's photo diary so over the next 12 months like behind the scenes um, how the book is going, how it's being put together. That's something that I'm really excited about offering to people. Like you, you asked good questions in this podcast, like, you know, what's, what are you, what's your thought process? How are you going to approach this? How do you envisage the next 12 months? And the, the writer's photo diary will be like really expressive and how that does, it will be raw. It will be behind the scenes. It will, it will be a, um, a stream of consciousness. If you like, I will, I will write how I feel what's going on whether it's been a good week whether it's been a bad week like where my motivation's at but also we'll have uh exclusive photos and videos from my time in Venezuela from any face-to-face interviews I conduct in England um or wherever they may be there'll be exclusive photo and video snippets there'll be things that don't make the book as well and I'm really excited about doing that and it's something that I couldn't do if this was just a book that you're buying off the shelf um, by, by being part of this Kickstarter experience, like you, you'll be, um, you will be experiencing something very different to just buying the finished product. It will be a 12 month journey that I hope people enjoy. Uh, the next tier up from that, uh, which is 50 pounds is all that's come before plus your own article in the book. So if you have an interest in Venezuela or Venezuelan football, um, I have 10 slots. I have seven left, uh, for people to write their own a thousand word opinion piece and that will be included in the the book in the published book uh, under selected works um at the end of the book so if if you're a uh you know if you're a sports writer if you're a football writer and uh, no matter where you are in your career if you want to be in a if you want to be in a published book you want to have your opinion on venezuela in print then you can get involved in that that's 50 pounds and then the final tier, which I only have one left of, um, four have already gone, is a signed Venezuela shirt. And again, this is really different. Like it's, it's an opportunity to be like a unique part of Venezuelan um, football history. If you like, every uh, person, every football player, every football manager that I interview on a face to face basis uh, will be signing this shirt. So it will really be a journey through the process of writing this book. And by the end, um, of of the process, there should be like 50 to 100 signatures from from Venezuelan football players and managers you know collated on a shirt um, that you know you can have on your wall framed or you know hopefully you don't wear it to five side um, <laughs> Wednesday night but there's only one of them left though um, and and that's 200 pounds uh, obviously you get the shirt as well as um, if you want to, uh, written piece in the book as well as the the photo diary and uh, a copy of the book. I do want to point out that the book uh, will be a signed limited edition copy of the book unique to Kickstarter. So there will be chapters in the book um, that won't be in uh, any future edition. It will only be in the Kickstarter and the artwork for the books the cover um, for example, I have three at the moment prospective book covers. Anyone that backs the project through Kickstarter will get a vote on what the final book cover is. And that book cover, again, will be exclusive to the Kickstarter uh, project. And then the, any future edition of the book will have one of the remaining two covers. Uh, so, again, the cover will be uh, unique to the Kickstarter and driven by the community w- what they vote for. Um, and finally, everyone that backs the project will have their name incorporated into the artwork of the book. Um, I can send you a link after this so you can um, show anyone listening to this what I mean. But there's a great graphic designer who's done uh, Arsenal Football Club program covers um, artwork for for music uh, lovers and bands. But he essentially creates artwork from names. So it would be, for example, a picture of Salomon Rondon or a picture of the Venezuelan national team made up of names of everyone that backs this project through Kickstarter. Uh, So you'll be included in the the artwork of the book. So I'm really excited about like the unique and uh, individual aspects that I can offer people by doing this project through Kickstarter that I couldn't if I was doing it in a orthodox way.
0: Nice. Perfect. Jordan Ford, thank you so much for for the interview. Thank you so much for your work. And we're all looking forward to to reading Red Wine and Arepas, how football is becoming Venezuela's religion. We'll talk to you soon. All right, man
1: thank you thanks for having me on and i uh, wish you all the best with the podcast like, it's great that you're starting something new uh, i will i will be listening and i hope it
0: goes well for you i really appreciate that thank you man cheers take it easy and you Bye-bye. bye bye bye